Hi, everybody. Thanks for coming out tonight. Not staying home for the State of the Union? What? Um, <laughs> I didn't either. Um, <laughs> I'm Yvette Moy, and I'm the director of the Office of Public Lectures here at the University of Washington, and our office is housed in the graduate school. Um, before we begin, I have a couple of housekeeping items that I need to go over with you. Um, the first is if would you mind checking your cell phones and turn them off or silence. Off is always better, don't you think? Like, I like off. Um, there's going to be no video or audio recording of this evening's lecture. Um, we do have our NPR affiliate, KUOW, here with us this evening, um, who will be making an official um, archival quality um, copy of tonight's lecture, and it will be made available through the UW Media Center. Um, and then finally, please refrain from taking photographs while our lecturer is on stage. Um, our guest here tonight, Emil Petrie, who's an emeritus faculty, will be our official photographer, and he'll take photographs for the first five minutes of tonight's talk, and then he will not take any more. Right, Emil? Okay. <laughs> um, I also want to take a, a couple minutes to acknowledge our special guest from New York Live Arts. They flew all the way out from New York City to be with us in the 206, and we really want to thank you all for being here. Um, I especially want to um, acknowledge Kyle Maud. Thank you so much for everything that you've done, as well as Hannah Emerson um, with New York Live Arts. Um, you guys have been instrumental in making sure that this event is running smoothly and flawlessly, and we really thank you so much for being a great partner. Um, before we begin, I also want to share a little history on the endowment um, that allows us to bring our speaker this evening. Um, it is sponsored through the generous Jesse and John Dan's endowment. It was created in 1961, um, and this endowment has allowed the University of Washington to host over 160 speakers and public intellectuals. John Dan's was an immigrant um, who arrived in Seattle with his family from Russia in 1881 when he was four years old. And as a youth, he grew up with a deep understanding of hardship and poverty. After working in a variety of positions, including as a newsboy, a cowhand, and a traveling merchant, Mr. Dance entered the motion picture business and became a very successful businessman. Always regarded as an independent and unorthodox thinker, John Dance was self-educated and read widely and liberally. He was fascinated by scientific developments and liberal religious movements especially humanism. In creating this endowment, his goal was to bring to the University of Washington distinguished men and women, quote, who have concerned themselves with the impact of science and philosophy on man's perception of a rational universe. I never get tired saying that. It's so interesting. Um, Mr. Danza's wife, Jessie, shared his vision, and she augmented the endowment with additional gifts throughout her life. Please join me in expressing appreciation for this invaluable gift to the university and the citizens of our region. Tonight's dance speaker, Bill T. Jones, will be introduced by Elizabeth Cole Zeffel. She's the Director of Artistic Engagement at the Meany Center for the Performing Arts. Thank you. Thank you, Yvette. Good evening, and thank you for joining us. As Yvette stated, I'm Elizabeth Duffel from Meany Center for the Performing Arts. It is my great honor and privilege to be here with you tonight to introduce this evening's speaker, Bill T. Jones. Bill T. Jones is a multi-talented artist, choreographer, dancer, theater director, and writer. 
Throughout his career, he's received major honors, including the Human Rights Campaign's 2016 Visibility Award, the 2013 National Medal of Arts, and a 1994 MacArthur Genius Award. He was inducted into the American Academy of Arts and Sciences in 2009 and was named an irreplaceable dance treasure by the Dance Heritage Coalition in 2000. Mr. Jones attended the State University of New York at Binghamton, where he became interested in movement and dance. He became the co-founder of American Dance Asylum in 1973, and in 1982, he formed the Bill T. Jones Arnie Zane Company with his late partner, Arnie Zane. Today, Mr. Jones is the artistic director of New York Live Arts. His work engages with race, class, gender, history, and identity. And as Wyatt Mason from the New York Times recently wrote, like all great attempts at artistic expression, his art manages to model compassion for the spectator, to make us feel what it's like to be dealing with an intense feeling not our own, but one that becomes ours to deal with. Tonight, he will discuss the four-year creation process of the Analogy Trilogy, which will be presented by Meany Center for the Performing Arts, just across Red Square there, Thursday to Saturday night of this week. Um, and this is only the second time the full trilogy has been been presented back-to-back -back like this, so we're very pleased to be, uh, be presenting it, and yes, tickets are still available for all three nights. So please welcome Bill T. Jones. Thank you. I'm doubly flattered, triply flattered, because the most powerful man in the world is actually addressing the country tonight. <laughs> no. uh <-huh. laughs> I didn't mean it as a laugh line. Actually, it sort of makes me sick. But you chose to be here. Yeah, right. Okay. So uh, art or talking about art is going to save us, right? I don't believe it. That's not a laugh line either. Winning will save us. Voting will save us. Hey, Maya. You don't agree, huh? Okay, well, we'll talk later. Um, John Cage. I had just finished a uh, series of works that were going to prove for the last time that I was truly a choreographer and not a politician disguised as a choreographer. So I made a number of works that were, quote, pure music works. And um, those works, good works. But when they were over, I was left with that familiar sinking feeling. Why make another one? What in the hell do you dance about now? So... I thought I'd turn to the great um, saint of uh, modernism, whose name is John Cage, 
And how did he do it? What did he do? Supposedly, the story goes that there came a certain point, was it in the 40s, and he was having a kind of a breakdown. Uh, the breakdown was that he felt it was the Cold War and the work that he was making was not really uh, speaking to the world. He was uh, living as a heterosexual man with a wonderful woman. And then he met this uh, young, beautiful male dancer named Merce Cunningham, and they fell in love. And uh, his partner, this woman and he, suddenly something changed that was pretty drastic. And he thought, I don't know. And he started working with a teacher, an, uh, an uh, Indian teacher, who um, pointed him toward the direction of Eastern mysticism, saying, you know, John, you don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to know everything. And he began to think about indeterminate action. Make a list of things. Make another list of things. And then toss the I Ching and decide what the order is going to be. You don't have to have compositional sense. As a matter of fact, John Cage was known to say, and he's often quoted, and excuse me if I quote him too much, um, that the more an artist gets out of his work, the more room there is for the audience to get in it. Oh, nice, huh? <laughs> Except if you have a huge ego and you're a performer by nature, and what's more, you're a seducer by nature, and you want to be loved, right? So you spend, people spend years understanding how to get you to love them and what they make. Market study. What do people like? Well, I decided to sort of mock him. You know how you mock people you love? He did, as you well know, a very famous work called Indeterminacy back in the 50s. And what it was is he wrote stories, and he read them, one-minute stories, with no transitions, one after another, boom, boom, about his mother, boom, about his uh, art, boom, about his feelings about anarchy, boom, about Zen Buddhism, boom, 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 boom. And it was bewildering, mind-boggling. There was no transitions. So I thought, well, why don't I do that? Now, he could do that because he is uh, John Cage, <laughs> or he's a white man who can be neutral. He can just be about form. I said, well, you know, you know, times changed, you know, why don't you do that? So John Cage's stories were about his uh, spiritual beliefs, about uh, all sorts of things, except sex. Very little about race. Religion, you know, he's an Irish Catholic, and so on. So I thought, why don't I write my own stories and then do chance procedure? And I did. And what's more, we took all of our choreography. This is something that we sort of borrowed from Merce Cunningham. Choreography from 30 years, my wonderful collaborator, and of course, director Janet Wong and I. And we began to slice them up arbitrarily, things that Arnie Zane and I would have been doing, things that came from the more lyrical aspects of what we were doing. And it could be no transitions. Drove the dancers crazy. <laughs> crazy when Paul and Jennifer had a meltdown. You should talk, I'll talk to you about that, right? There's no transition. How do I go into this? You know, just go into it. 
And we really wrestled with that thing. And that was a series of works called Storytime. Should have cleared out all the concerns I had about success and failure. Supposedly, he was free of those things. Well, then it ran its course. We go to a few places now doing it. I love doing it. But what was the next work supposed to be about? Why are you making anything? My dancer, Eling, Eling has heard this so many times, uh, Taiwanese as opposed to Chinese dancer, as she re reminds me quite regularly. Um, she and I were talking in our uh, reviews and uh, uh, every 18 months about what are you doing, Bill, so on and so forth. And she voiced what a lot of them were voicing because by this time I had already um, I've been, I've done two shows on Broadway, won two Tonys. I was, it was very starry, you know, Jay-Z, Beyonce, uh, all those, they produced one of the, the shows I did. And she said to me, frankly, where's your interest? You know, it's like when your family, you've been like sort of tipping around and one of your kids or somebody nails you and says, do you really love us? Or are you pretending? And, well, I said, my interest right now is in literature. And it was true. Nothing held me like a book in the hand written by somebody who had extreme command of language and form. And one such book was uh, W.G.Z. Bald's The Immigrant. And um, E-M-I-G-R-A-N-T. And this book had four parts. The third part was the one that really moved me. It was called uh, Ambrose Edelwart. Don't you love that name? You know, Ambrose Edelwart. And it's a story about a working class Jew, uh, German boy, born in about 1890, who is um, really precocious. He becomes a first-rate manservant. He lives all over the planet. And um, he finds his way to New York in 1911, and he is quickly employed by the, quote, richest Jewish family, the Solomons. Toxic brew, huh? Working class German, Jewish family. And they hire him to guard their eccentric son, Cosmo. Cosmo has an unlimited bank account. He could do whatever he wants to do. So they gamble, and I won't try to tell you the whole story, except there was something intriguing about what he doesn't say. We're led to believe that they had a very special relationship, but the, but the author never names it. And what's more, it's only intimated by people talking about them. <laughs> Around this time, I thought, ah, that's what I should be doing. But I remembered that I had done an oral history with uh, my companion, my husband, Bjorn Amelon's mother, who was in her 80s at that time, French Jewish woman who had been working in internment camps, not a concentration camp, during the war. And I had recorded her stories that her son told me that when they grew up, they didn't hear these stories. Not unusual for people who survived the Holocaust, as I understand. But she was telling these stories all the time now. So I recorded them. So as I'm thinking, uh, I'm going to put her stories, which is roughly the time frame of Ambrose Edelbart, 
in together, and then I'm going to triangulate with my young dancers. Because I think, like a lot of us, we're concerned that um, one thing that the Internet has done is taken away a sense of history. Everything is like so. There's no, you can have everything at the touch of a button. You can have access to everything. You don't have to know anything. So, okay, why don't I have them really know Dora's words by saying those words? But it was too soon for Ambrose, so we started with Dora. Let's listen to the beginning of Dora. Can you call what was happening when you came in the room now? What you heard? Yeah, I wonder, because that's how I live. I'm always catching up with what I, my senses tell me, but I don't register it unless it's somehow bracketed and framed. That is where the process begins. Nick, as soon as I move these, let's play that. Let's bring the lights down and play the beginning of Dora. You're going to hear my mother-in-law, who is now... 97, and has just recently had a debilitating stroke. Dora is almost history now. She was very palpable when we made this work. Funny thing about time, isn't it? Just the beginning of Dora. La lune ne sait pas et le soleil attend. Ici bas, chacun Pense à chacune, chacun doit en faire autant. La lune est là, la lune est là, la lune est là, mais le soleil ne le sait pas. Il faut la nuit, il faut la nuit, mais le soleil qui toujours lui. What does it mean again, Dora? You say that. The sun has an appointment with the moon, but the moon is hiding itself and doesn't know that he is looking for her. But to meet her, you need night, you need night, and the sun not knowing it is blowing, so the night is not there, and the moon isn't there either.
is the name of that piece. I had done a solo show, soon to be almost 20 years ago, and I danced a whole string of Schubert Lieder. And there was one that I was going to get to, but never got around to, and it was this one. So, 10, 15 years later, pops back up again. And the, list, and the, the translation is something like, when the mist spread over the mountain and the moon battles with the clouds, the old man takes his harp and walks toward the wood, quietly singing, Holy night, soon it will be done. Soon I shall sleep the long sleep which will free me from all grief. Then the green trees rustle. Sleep sweetly, good old man. And the swaying grasses whisper, we shall cover his resting place. And many a sweet bird calls, let him rest in his grassy grave. The old man listens. The old man is silent. Death has inclined toward him. Morbid, romantic bullshit. Sorry, a child is in the room. Well, I am a romantic. What is this thing about memory, the old man, the moon? I didn't know what the words were when I was so moved by it. But it stayed with me, and I knew that I wanted to open it up 
and it was the door through which I, I, I stepped through. I thought it was going to be, has anyone seen uh, Visconti's uh, Death in Venice? Well, you know how he uses Mahler brilliantly in it to talk about decadence and all of that? Once again, we always turn to the Germans when we want to talk about that place of kind of a moral prurience and beauty all tied up together. And that's what I thought I was going to do with the Ambrose story. But then I found that it seemed to be something about sitting with this old Jewish woman who was talking to me about being 19 years old when the Germans marched into Belgium and her mother was dying of cancer. Oh, so drama, so much drama, but so real. And yet, my young dancers, I thought that they would benefit, one, I want them to be close to what I love. I love the Schubert. I want them not to be intimidated or feel that it's something dead white men art, but it's something alive. But I also wanted to find a way to be closer to Dora because I'm getting old. And it's flattering to have gorgeous, they're right here, look at, look at them right now, they're beautiful. And I keep getting a fresh group of them, it's as if they're eternally young and I'm getting old. <laughs> it's nice, and when it's not, then what the hell are they, are they my colleagues? What is it, what's the connection? We had thought form was the connection. We had thought that the style of dancing was the connection. There was once a time when you spent all this time learning Graham, or then you learned Cunningham, and those styles would connect you to your materials, which were the dancers. Well, what happened, something happened with the postmoderns. Um, we wanted it all. We were not terribly schooled. But we had a lot of ambition, and we had this thing called conceptualism. If the concept was strong, it didn't matter what the execution was. So we thought. The generation of the 40s would have thought, you guys are fooling yourself. What did Martha Graham say? The foot is either pointed or it's not. No two ways about it. But we, almost quoting modern uh, quantum physics, we think we can be both. And we don't think a line doesn't have to be finished. And an idea for a dance can be little more than just an idea for a dance. What was the idea as you were coming in? What was happening? That was just life happening, or me indulging. Or was it an opportunity for you to make a work in your head? That's what I was taught by postmodernism. We're having a conversation with your creation. Matter of fact, John Cage says creation is actually, what's that term? Self-alteration. That's what he thought a good work of art was. A good work of art was an opportunity for the maker and for the audience to rearrange something. But back to Bilty Jones. I want to make something achingly beautiful. I want to talk about things like life and death, and I want to talk about aging. I want to talk about time. I want to talk about metaphor. And so what I tried to slyly do was 
once I had this idea of what we would be, what it would feel like, then the question of, would be, what will it look like? I wanted you to see that section because the number of things were being laid out. You meet Dora, and Dora is almost an idea. Dora, we, every day, we're hoping that we have her longer, but Dora will not be with us for a long well, she's 97, but she has a cousin who's 10 years older. God knows. You know, who knows? All bets are off. But she's an old lady. Uh, there is Dora, and then there is my beautiful dancers. And then there is this ritual of these things that they're moving around. Someone said, one of the nicest things that particular critic has ever said about my work, and maybe one of the nicest things said about this work was, oh, the opening, they're like constructing memory. So I had said to our, our host, you know, that it would be very useful if the audience could come in and get a whiff of what it was like when I was listening to the music. Now it's yours. And then it, you would connect it to what you see. And not only do you connect it to what you see and hear, but now there's this language of these things moving. There is also the decor which moves like this. It's actually a dance floor, which usually runs this way, but uh, Bjorn Amelon decided to make it go that way. And he said it should be a space that is a memory space. So analogy is a work that actually compares something. What's it comparing? Sometimes when I want to be uh, particularly uh, playful with writers, I say, oh, it's a, it, it's comparing a life well lived. Ah, okay. Dora's a very good story. She's 19 year old, running through the streets of Antwerp. The dancers are beautiful. They're tell, telling us the story. It's, I, if, if I'm allowed to say so, it's a charming piece. And it has, it packs something, but it also is, it tastes good. While making that work, my nephew, Lance Theodore Briggs, my sister's only son, and um, young actor, not actor, young dancer, model, um, who I'd known since he was in his mother's belly. He um, and I have recommenced a conversation, and we think he's dying. If you know anything about me, my bio, death looms large because I had a very public death of my companion whose company, whose name the company still bears, was Arnie Zane, who died in my arms after 17 years. So Lance, we think that he may be going that direction. Now, you just made a, quote, charming, winning piece with a, strong Jewish lady. Well, can you, without going to Europe, can you come home with your themes? What is the history? What is memory? What is love? What is death? And what does art have to do with it? So, I started making an oral history when he was in the hospital. 
And I asked him questions I, like I asked Dora, such as, uh, where does your name come from? Your parents? Tell me about your relationship to this and that. He was a young dancer at the school of San Francisco Ballet when he was eight years old. He and I, he said that I was his hero, his Uncle Bill. It was two people that he really, I don't know if he, you know, he's capable of flattery. flattery. Believe me, with his life, he, he learned about seduction. Uh, he said, you and Michael Jackson. Aww. <laughs> oh. Aww. Oh. So um, we do this oral history, and the question is, I know that there are people who said, well, you know, you're going to do this story about this heroic white lady, and now you're going to do a story about this dysfunctional life of a black man. Well, why not? Well, Black Lives Matter, Ferguson, Michael Brown, at risk, black people, violence, drugs. So shouldn't it be also shouldn't it also have an uplift? Don't I owe it to the time? Because there's now a kind of a code. Have you noticed how correct we've become now? Right? You notice how many more brown people are selling Fords? How many more brown people are having holidays in Barbados? <laughs> Trying to get it right now. No, it's not a white country. No, 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 that's not, that's, not, that's not true. No, it's not a white country. You see, in our advertising, now brown people, brown people, does it feel a little forced to you? You don't have to speak to me. It feels forced to me. We're all trying to be so correct, so good. Well, let's move the concerns of the culture away and get down to the business of art and association. Let's talk about metaphor. Let's talk about character. Can you do that independent of concern about the discourse around the black male body? My nephew wants to work with his uncle. Can we talk as two men, two black men, in a world where, quite frankly, I love you all being here, but let's do a little racial looking for a minute. This is my life. This is the truth of my life. It's been this way always. Does it make me crazy? Yeah. But I don't, so what? It's part of the job description, this kind of craziness, alienation, what have you. So we went into it, making a work about his um, exploitation at the hand of a pederast, cocaine, drugs, money, being a sex worker. In the same spirit, Adora talking about being that brave 19-year-old, running and getting laudanum from her mother, working in a concentration, uh, in an internment camp. And then, so what are these pieces about? about what is a life well-lived. When we meet him, he's almost dying in the hospital of um, complications from HIV-AIDS. He didn't die. 
aha, he didn't die, and what's more, he tells me that he is going to make something out of his life, and he is an artist. And what's that? At one point, he and I have a discussion about, uh, he reminds me that once I said to him, uh, you're not an artist until you can uh, make something beautiful out of the ugliness of your life. Made me cringe a little bit. I can imagine having said that to him years ago. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I said, you know what? I, I don't even think it has to be beautiful anymore. But you've got to make something out of something that has, that's expensive. And that's probably one of my biggest concerns right now with my field. I'm not quite sure that I care enough about what I go to see. I'm not quite sure the stakes are high enough. Now, you can't, it's almost like saying, you know, uh, the relationship you're having with your lover is not deep enough. That's from you and your God and your lover. So when someone, the work that they make, I can't judge it. But I know from me, I oftentimes see things and I think, what if there was a caption on what I'm seeing? What if what I'm seeing was actually a description of something that was tangible, frightening, real? What if it really had real consequence for me or the artist making it? This is what I tried to do with Lance's work. The interesting thing about it, form is actually a safety net for me. Or a, what do I want to call it? A, a, a seatbelt. That floor is there in Lance as well. There's refrains of Schubert still there, although we're using my nephew's uh, rhythm and blues songs, because he sees himself as a songwriter. And through his drug addiction and his crazy life, he was still doing stage shows. He was a very beautiful man. He was modeling. He was doing all those things, but he, that crack pipe was um, something that Dora didn't have to worry about. So we soldiered on. And at a certain point in the piece, he and I have a real fight. It's the most inappropriate thing to air that to in a room full of strangers. Me saying to him, I think you did something you're ashamed of. Do you say that to someone you love? I did. Am I going to hell for it? Where is artist hell? <laughs> Mark him. Mark him, whoever said that. You're going to ask him to explain that. <laughs> okay, well, so Lance happens. It is uh, very, it's not to everyone's liking. It certainly doesn't taste as good as Dora does. But it has something else, and now I can smell it. Now let's get back to where you started, that novel. That novel which is, um, I think uh, uh, Carlo Villanueva uh, here, he says when in the piece uh, Ambrose, he says, he, he mentions the origami of the storytelling. The man, W.G. Zeeball, is such a wonderful writer that he can take the past and folded into the future and vice versa. He has researched things so that he, sometimes there's a little digression about something that you never thought was related to this thing, but suddenly it's there and you're 
you're really moved by the relationships in it, but you're now thinking about a flower. You're thinking about the taste of food. You're thinking about an atmospheric condition. You're thinking about history. All of that, and I realized I was very envious. So we set out to make the third section, which is called Analogy Ambrose, the immigrant. And that idea has been one of the most rewarding things I've gone in pursuit of. I don't think I could have done that without the other parts that I did do before. Analogy, the comparison of things. A metaphor where one thing stands in for another thing. The origami of storytelling, where form, you can move things around. You can develop a very personal language that the audience can buy into, and then they become co-creators with you. That is where I think the strength of this work is for me in all the things I have made. So what about the politics? Tonight, um, we were going to show a bit of um, Uncle Tom's Cabin. Uncle Tom's Cabin happened at a time when Jesse Helms was standing on the, in the legislature waving a book of Robert Maplethorpe's filthy photographs. And they were taking away from funding for people that were challenging family values. And they were, it was the, um, at that time, the liberalism was in the ascendancy. And we were all convinced that that is the way it's going to go. Bill Clinton played the saxophone on Saturday Night Live. We baby boomers, we were in charge now. And we knew we were right. We're fair-minded, generous, non-racist non-sexist, non-homophobic, the way it's smooth, clear. <laughs> How'd we do with that? Well, that was Uncle Tom's Cabin, and Uncle Tom's Cabin was like a traveling show. My friends John Coles and Sage Coles, two real leaders in the community in Minneapolis. Maybe you know of them. John Coles was the publisher of the... Um, Minneapolis Star, and they had retired, and they wanted to do something, and they were real good liberals. That guy, they actually dropped everything and went on the road with my dance company for two years, ending every night fully naked with all sorts of different people. I mean, you had to have been there. I don't remember the one here, but we did, we did perform, I'm looking around for somebody who, who we performed it here, right? Yes, and that's what I thought we would have started tonight with. But I wasn't sure if I could, like, ever go back there again. I was so sure. Come one, come all. Stand with me. Tell Jesse Helms to go to hell. We're not afraid of our bodies. We're not afraid of each other. We don't even know your, your breasts are hanging here, your balls are hanging here. It's beautiful. Fat people, skinny people, men, women. No transgender people, as I remember. I don't think it even crossed my mind at the time. And it worked. It worked. It was supposed to have answered every question I had about art, 
and politics, morality. We're supposed to have answered all the questions, but as we know, or as I'm learning, just when you think you've answered all the questions, gotcha! So that's where we are now. And I have made this work that I just described to you a work that is as much about aesthetics as it is about um, psychology. And I ask myself, what happened to your politics? Well, you know who Justin Vivian Bond is? Um, she is a wonderful trans uh, woman who says, uh, glamour is resistance, she says. That's something that she can say with a wink, and maybe not even with a wink. So is um, form resistance? Is um, beauty resistance? Is the kind of puzzle state that a work of art places you in that's not clear to anyone? Is that a kind of resistance? I don't know. So, that's what I came here tonight to talk to you about. How the work gets made, what I was trying to do, what I thought I was doing, and now it's done. And this engagement here is the first time each work will be seen in a sequence. Bjorn's decor, this cage he made, Nick's music, my company. Some of the people are no longer, from the original cast are no longer with us, but they are, they're here. And the question now remains, what next? Why make another piece? Other than the business of art, other than it's what we do, other than the habit of art, or maybe now I don't even have to know why. Can I be so comfortable in the world that I can be generous, like it was putting these words up and playing? Have I earned the trust of enough of you that I can just play? Years ago, uh, I was an affiliate artist. I don't know if you know that program. It's a very important program, decentralizing art throughout the U.S. And they, a community, for instance, my friends in Iowa, bought my time for eight weeks. And I came to their community, and I belonged to the community, and I did informances, informal performances or informative performances. And I was trained by a woman whose name was Shirley Potter, and she said something which was very important. I mean, maybe it made me a terrible ham, but she also said, you know, you've got to allow yourself to be looked at. She said, do you ever notice you go to a party and there's a child over in the corner playing, and the child can stop the whole party, and they're looking at the child so absorbed in what they're doing? She said, you can learn something about that. So maybe is that what the next part of this career is? Maybe it doesn't have to mean anything. Maybe it has to feel good to us, and then you will like it. Maybe we have to be totally disarmed and disarming, and that is its meaning, and that is the resistance, and that is its politics. 
maybe I don't have to try anything, grow old in public, and be generous and apparent. Check back with me on that one. Seaball finishes his book, and I'll finish with this. Memory often strikes me as a kind of dumbness. It makes one's head heavy and giddy, as if one were not looking back down the receding perspectives of time, but rather down on the earth from a great height, from one of those towers whose tops are lost to view in the clouds. Thank you very much.